Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello, everyone. I am very thrilled to bring you two very amazing segments. The first is a segment with Dr. Leslie Barrett. Now, you might know her from Twitter, and you might have seen some of her fairly political and advocacy-oriented tweets. She is someone who is a physician, actually a surgeon, and she has actually entered into politics in the Canadian political arena. After that, she actually has now moved on to moving back to Australia with her family, and uh, we let wish her the best of luck. But before she left, I was able to record a really cool segment with her. So listen in on that. Then second, we're going to bring back a friend of the podcast, someone from our own Mac PFD volunteer faculty corps, and it's Dr. Sean Park. And he's going to talk about playfulness and pathfinding in academic medicine and healthcare. And, and he's really just brought in a really great way to think about how we can bring play and creativity into our everyday work. And he talks about a Pathfinder program that exists that you might want to check out. You can see it being listed along all the other events in macpfd.ca's events calendar. So definitely check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mac PFD Spark. I'm here with a special guest, Dr. Leslie Barron, who has been taking advocacy on the road in a new way that many of us probably don't even think of doing. She is someone who has entered into the world of politics and uses that as a way that she engages with changing health systems and advocating for change within healthcare. And so I thought I'd bring her in to inspire us with her story. So can you say hi to everyone? Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. All right. So thanks so much. And I know we're going to be missing you because you're now headed to Australia, actually, to take on new chapters there with your family who's from that area. But you've been here around in Canada for quite some time. And uh, well, I was actually born, born here, near here, Ancaster, actually. And I, I did med school at Western and then surgical training at Calgary. And then on the way to doing a master's degree, met my husband on a vacation, and he was Australian. So that is how I ended up in Australia, getting qualified there. And then 12 years ago, we decided to move back here to be closer to family. And now it's time really to sort of move back to Australia to be closer to his family and and for me to take up a new challenge, really. Well, that's so exciting. And so in the in the time that you've been here in Canada, you've been quite a mover and shaker. Can you tell me a little bit about your decision to enter into politics of all things? It's something that I think for a lot of doctors isn't even on their radar as something that they could do, but it's something that you chose to do. So can you tell us a little bit of that origin story there? Yeah. So I, a lot of people asked me that when I was running in the federal election last year, like, why? Why would, you know, why aren't you going to be doing surgery or are you still going to be doing surgery? And I mean, I think medicine is inherently political, right? In Canada, the funding, how it's organized. And so, and, and particularly 
as we're sort of recognizing more about the social determinants of health, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly logical for physicians to, to get involved in politics and start advocating for themselves, their patients. And, and really, my interest is in advocating for changes to the healthcare system that will benefit both patients and doctors, because there's lots of areas where we could improve things, you know, for collective benefit. So, you know, when we moved back to Canada, we had two very young children. I was hired at Georgetown and then I had my third child quite quickly. And then we were really in the what I called hanging on by our fingernails years where we didn't really have time for a lot else. So then what happened was I was walking through an airport on our way to actually it was a 10th wedding anniversary trip. And I picked up a copy of The Atlantic that happened to have a condensed version of a book called The Confidence Code. And I read it on the flight and I ended up subsequently buying the entire book. And like a lot of people in medicine, and up until that point, I really felt like what happened to me was really an individual thing that, you know, I wasn't really affected by gender bias or anything like that. And the book was really eye-opening as a, wow, this is something that happens to other women too. And you have to remember, like, I'm in my mid-30s at this point. Within a, I have a master's degree. I have a transplant fellowship. I'm qualified in two different countries. I have three children and I'm leading a full-time career and I'm still sort of questioning myself and my accomplishments. And so it was just a real eye-opener to me that late in my career, because of course, when I was in training, we didn't talk about these things. We didn't talk about gender bias. Uh, we didn't evaluate whether or not uh, female trainees were being evaluated appropriately. We didn't talk about racism in healthcare. We just didn't have these conversations. And so I think we have moved forward, but unfortunately, not enough when it comes to structurally and systemically. So that was really the point. And then very soon after, you know, the Trudeau liberals were elected and the gender equity cabinet was proclaimed, you know, because it's it's 2015. And I was actually quite impressed with that. And, you know, the Trudeau federal liberals have continued to draw criticism for doing gender based analysis on their policies like the, you know, oil pipelines and things like that. And, and yet the economists are telling us that's where we need to go. We need to think about how gender affects things. And particularly with COVID, it's been extremely disheartening that we've had these conversations about gender equity, not just within medicine, but society more broadly. And then we've come to this point with COVID where we now have moms who are working from home, homeschooling, losing their jobs, sliding into poverty, and we, we still have the media consistently going to male experts. Women's voices are completely lost because we just don't have enough women at healthcare leadership tables sort of making their points and, and pointing things out. Uh, so it's been very kind of disheartening. But anyway, so going backwards, I then applied to be on the OMA board and I was elected onto the board at a very sort of controversial time. And at that point, I really didn't know how things were structured, right? Like how decisions were actually made. The OMA negotiates pay for, for Ontario physicians with the government. Negotiations did not go well, a very controversial TPSA agreement. And so I was sort of thrown in at the deep end and, and had to, to weather all of that. And at the end of that, I was just like, this process is ridiculous. <laughs> like, there's just, there's not enough women. There's not enough diverse voices at the table. And so that was when I decided to uh, have a run at politics. And again, I was sort of wading into something that I had 
really no experience in. You know, I had met at the CMA meeting, I had met Monica Dutt and I was just so, she, at that point she ran in the federal election for the NDP party. And I was just so impressed with that. And, you know, then meeting people like Jillian Ratty, who also ran and, and just these women stepping forward and putting themselves forward and out there with their policies and, and physicians should absolutely be doing this. We have you know, intimate expertise of our patient's experience, and we are able to link that to evidence-based policies, or we should be able to. And, and we're not doing that in government. And so that's really when I put my nomination application in. I was nominated and I ran in this riding, well, Wellington, Halton Hills. I obviously did not win, but I did get 20,000 votes. And, and I went through the process of lots of door knocking and debating and meeting new people, you know, getting to meet cabinet members, Catherine uh, McKenna, all of these incredible women that we are seeing come up through Canadian politics. And so, you know, even more recently, we've seen the focus on Jacinda Ardern. And, and I keep saying there are lots of Jacindas out there. We just need to elect them and, and get them to the table so that they can sort of influence policy. Okay, so my next question then is one that's more around how to vocalize then when you are at the table, right? I think increasing, like like you said, there are more and more women who are stepping up like you have and seeking representation. And then they get to these tables and they're surrounded by many people that sometimes don't look like them or sound like them. What are some strategies that you can suggest when you are at a table and you are in the minority? What are some things that you can think of that people could do to kind of get their jobs done? So I think when you're looking at women at leadership tables, you, ha you have to understand how the process works. Who sets the agenda? Because frankly, if, you, if you're interested in gender equity, intersectionality, tackling racism in your institution, you sitting in a meeting for two hours talking about, you know, a, a call schedule, scheduling issues is not really going to get you very far. So you have to understand who's setting the agenda. If these issues aren't on the agenda, why aren't they on the agenda? You know, how do you put forward motions? How do you sort of draw, you know, get people to support your motions and speak to the motions? And I think with women, particularly people tend to not take our opinions at, at face value. And so it's very helpful to have anecdotes, but also then back them up with evidence when you're at these tables. And unfortunately, we do know that a lot of women who are promoted into leadership positions who do get seats at the table are those that aren't talking about gender equity. So if, if they choose to talk about that when they're at these leadership tables, it's kind of going to come out of left field or they're not going to talk about it at all, or it's immediately going to be shunted off to a, a lesser priority. So I think you have to be very deliberate, you know, in terms of the system and the structures that you have in place to decide who is actually sitting at the table. It is not enough to simply be sitting at a table as a woman, right? You, you have to actually be there to try to change things, change the policies that has really let us down in terms of leadership in Canadian healthcare and politics, in terms of not allowing female voices at the table. So what is the strategy? Are you going to advocate for term limits as a way of increasing diversity? Are you going to advocate for quotas? You know, are you going to have them look at this sort of uh, evidence? Uh, so you have to bring those sort of ideas to the table to get your voice heard. But, but the institutions and the structures need to be doing their job too, right? Like, it's just ridiculous to not have term limits for healthcare leadership positions in any, I mean, really any institution or board in Canada when we know we have these huge issues, right? Term limits are a good idea. <laughs> They're very simple. They're governance best practices. <laughs> so 
So it's just silly that we don't have them. And then things that we know also work in terms of the gender pay gap, like salary transparency. It, this should be a no brainer. And yet we had the OMA spending thousands and thousands of dollars to block pay transparency in Ontario up until very recently. So yeah, those, those are just, I mean, there's lots of different things that, that people can do in terms of bringing best practices to their, to their tables. And unfortunately, I think as, as physicians, we get into leadership without a lot of training, right? We spend a lot of time just getting through our training, getting our exam, and then focusing on clinical work. And then often just as you're finishing as a woman, you're often then going into trying to get pregnant or getting pregnant and having very small children. And it doesn't leave you a lot of time or energy to advocate for these changes. And then, you know, by the time you're through it, it's like, well, I'm finished breastfeeding. So why should I advocate for breastfeeding facilities for somebody else? Uh, because it's just a temporary stage of, of life. I survived it and therefore everyone can as well. I think yeah. that one of the challenges that we often like to throw down as a, as a challenge is that how can we create systems that are better than what we went through? And I think that across the board, whether you're a man, woman, whether you're going to breastfeed or not, whether you're going to be someone who is a champion for, let's say, changing the call rota so they're more reasonable for our trainees, just because you went through something that was inhuman or horrific doesn't mean that you have to subject other people to that. And I think that as a great leader, not like a good enough leader, but a great leader that we should aspire to make better the systems that we actually have lived through. And you, you've survived it, it's true. And that's amazing. And you're resilient. And with all of that resilience that you've earned, I think now you can start going to the right boardrooms and going to the right meetings and suffering through the terms of reference and the changes and the change manager strategies. With all that extra resilience you have, use it now to make it make things better. And I think that that's the challenge I often throw forward for especially educators, because I do kind of run a clinician educator diploma program. And the idea would be, yeah, it's great that you went through something and you've survived it. You can tell that survivor story. But what what how how would it be if we didn't we didn't have to have that as a challenge? And what how much greater would you have become if you could have been spared that and could excel even further? And so I think that that's a challenge that I'd like to put to our faculty is how, how might we make systems better than we had it? Because I think that that's how we become better as as humans is that we leave behind better than we had. Otherwise, we'd all still be probably hunting and gathering and, and we wouldn't be able to pass on the great innovations and new ideas that we have from generation to generation. Yeah, it's interesting how medicine, some aspects of medicine really embrace innovation, you know, robotic surgery and all these, you know, stenting and things like that. And really, when we look at our training, it hasn't really changed that much. It's very disheartening. And I think the advantage that I've had as someone who's worked in the UK and in Australia is that it is a chance to see a completely different training system. The training system in Australia is completely, completely different. So they didn't have junior and senior on call for general surgery. Everybody was on the same call schedule. So instead of one in you know, three, you were doing one and seven. And then in addition, they had an eighth person to cover overnight call from 11 till seven. So that if you were coming back in on a weekday as a registrar training in surgery, and you were going to be doing a big open elective case all day that you were going to have had a minimum amount of sleep. That is something that we just haven't seen in Canada. And, and Australia is not that different, right? We, in Australia, there was paid overtime for registrars who worked more than 40 hours a week. The pay rates were much, much higher. And there was just more flexibility in the system for people to take mat leave. For example, the Royal College exams in Australia are done twice a year, which for women who need to take time off to have kids and breastfeed or are ill, it, 
you know, makes a lot more sense. And so we just don't see that sort of international collaboration that we see when it comes to medical innovation being done in education. And yet we, when we see like things like CBME, which, you know, I have real concerns about that it's going to be disadvantageous, particularly to procedural trainees that are women, you know, we see the, with it being pushed through without much evidence. So I think when you go and look at different systems, it really helps you because then you can come back and say, this is crazy. <laughs> like, why are we doing it this way? Because it's been done that way for a hundred years. There's so much that we could do to innovate. And I know that there are international medical education meetings, but unfortunately the trickle down to actual progressive changes doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, we could probably have a debate about CBME because I do think it's actually evidence-based. And I think that having been a scientist in the area and done the innovation, I think it's possible for it to actually be a big stroke of how we can improve equity and access. Because all of a sudden, you know, let's say someone that normally does a lot of the ward stuff, you know, takes care of all those things. And you haven't quantified that this surgical resident, who happens to be a woman, has been manning the fort upstairs and or womaning the fort, as I would probably say, <laughs> and making sure that the patient's needs are taken care of, doing all the family meetings, doesn't get to OR, actually gets a fair shot at being able to have a number of observed surgical procedures before, because right now we don't even have that quantification very well outlined in a lot of programs. I think in some programs there are case logs and things like that, but I think that as we get more nuanced in some of that accounting, it can actually be a way of transparently laying out that there is a a gender gap in some of these uh, situations. So I think that it can go both ways. uh, But just like you said, I think that there's a gap between those who are at the, let's say, the national meetings and the international meetings making this happen and then translating it down to our colleagues who are on the front lines and and explaining kind of like that evidence behind it. So I think that just in those kind of debates, I think we can have really, really awesome discussions around it. But how do we make more accessible those discussions? And how do we make them more accessible the concepts that we're talking about? And I think that for me, Twitter, that's how I know you, has been a great way of uh, of breaking down some of those silos and barriers. I think that as we all get in a little bit more comfortable with platforms like Zoom and other things, I think it, we can be really upping the ante with national and international collaboration or even just site between site, right? So, you know, Georgetown isn't too far from where we are. And yet this is the first time we're, we're meeting, we're meeting digitally. I'm from Ancaster and I've had almost nothing to do with, with mm-hmm. at McMaster and I'm a 30 minute drive away in the are in very siloed systems. Yeah. So how can we bring people together? I think it's the next great step so we can have that conversation because I think- You that, have to have the policies, right? The, yeah. the, framework that's yeah. going to allow you to do that thing. And I, I think we have such siloing in Canada that we really don't have that. So, mm-hmm. you know, these ideas are sort of percolating on social media. We know that women are getting together on social media, comparing notes about things and are, are much more vocal. And and a, a, most of us, I would hope, are also looking at intersectionality, like how does racism impact our patients' access to healthcare? How does it impact our, our medical leadership within Canada? And I'm, I'm not sure we've really seen from medical leadership in Canada an adequate response to any of these equity and diversity issues in, in medicine. And I think some of us are getting a bit fed up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I think that these are the conversations we need to have to explain why there's the importance for us to get involved and engage and create the systems and improve them. 
because a lot of the time people, I think, have specifically women and minorities often hit their head against a glass ceiling, let's say, and they can't make the change. But little by little, what you see is that each generation, if we help each other up and out, that if we develop people that come behind us up until a certain point, then eventually a whole bunch of us can hit that glass ceiling together and maybe burst through it. And I think that that's the way I see it. Because I've seen a few generations come through. I started med school in 1992, and I just haven't seen a ton of Mm -hmm. change in medicine. So I I think it really, we have to push really hard. Like if you Mm -hmm. told me that I was going to be spending 12 years being paid fee for service as a as a general surgeon in Canada, flat fee for service, right? Like I would have said, oh, you got to be kidding me. That was another advantage of going to Australia was realizing, oh, there are healthcare systems that have, the, you know, people on a flat salary. And guess what? We still do our jobs. Like we still mm-hmm. should work and operate patients and look after mm-hmm. people, even on a flat salary, this idea that the whole system would collapse if we weren't, weren't paid fee for services is kind of ridiculous. So, yeah, I I do hope that going forward that there is going to be much more focus on equity diversity. But I just I really it's disheartening to see, well, we're just going to have a committee and they're going to talk about equity and diversity and we're not going to embed it in any of our actual structures. Yeah, exactly. But I think that like what you said was true, right? We sometimes we lack the insights because we lack the training. And so I think that's been a big push from what we want to do with faculty development, continuing professional development is to give people access to the training, right? To understand, okay, this is a template for a terms of reference. If you want to change things, here's some language, you know, for setting up a term limit and uh, make it easier, right? Because I think that those of us who have come through and have the training, it's, it begets us to think about how we can leave down again, make the system better than it was before by laying down that track and making explicit the the tacit knowledge that often is passed down in smoky cigar rooms or now in zooms that you weren't in right Uh, and these are all those things that often people only learn by doing and so let's let's give them more opportunity to do that and so we have a whole pillar actually on leadership and management because I think that's what we need to do is give people the tools and and just like not every person who's a clinical teacher needs to have you know, master's level discussions about epistemology. So too, do we not need everyone to go and get an MBA and learn about organizational development? But does everyone need to learn how to maybe set an agenda, how to equitably run a meeting? Yeah, probably. And so what are the essentials that we need to have? Just the same as, you know, faculty development has traditionally focused on what are the core skills that a clinical teacher might need because that's where the tradition of the of the specialty of faculty development kind of came from is to upskill a lot of clinical teachers and I think we've done that really well and now I think it's about carving out the other skills that we need as clinicians and as teachers and as academics because I bet you there are people who are running big labs but haven't ever been trained to run a good equitable meeting and so how do we actually create that? So thank you so much for your time today. I think it's been a really revealing conversation. Make sure you write to your MPs and your MPPs because Mm -hmm. I think that is actually a way of affecting change. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. Have a great day, Dad. So that was simply an amazing first segment. And I'm going to give you a bit of a commercial now about our upcoming 2021 Women's Symposium. This was co-developed by the Department of Medicine's Associate Chair Equity and Inclusion. But more importantly, it's a place for the women within our faculty and those who identify as allies of women 
to really explore the idea of how women can lead in healthcare and beyond. As we know, there's a bit of a gender gap in our world. And at McMaster University, I think we have to try to see how we can, as faculty, really help to close that gap. We've brought together some amazing speakers from the world of politics, from the world of academia, from the worlds of healthcare. And I think it's going to be an amazing event. So definitely come and check it out. We are so grateful for all of our sponsors for coming to this event. You can check out more information about all of them at the Women's Symposium website. So definitely check out our event calendar and find the 2021 Women's Symposium, which will be on April 28th, 2021. It'll be great to have you there. And we're hoping that all of you, men, women, those who are non-binary or two-spirited, can join us and figure out how we can definitely raise awareness that women can lead in healthcare. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Chan, and I'm here with someone that I think is one of the most creative souls I've ever met. Dr. Sean Park is someone that I really look up to as someone who has a real touch point on what makes us creative, human, innovative. He's just a really thoughtful person in this space. I'm really excited to have this conversation with him because I just like hanging out with him. And Sean, can you say hi to everyone? Hello. Hello. All right. Wonderful to be here. That's great. Okay. So Sean, can you tell me a little bit about your background just to, for everyone to understand, you're a PhD trained scientist who does all sorts of a diverse work now, but where did you all start out? Where was your, what's your origin story? Origin story. I'm from Hamilton and I went to Mac and I was in the first cohort of the BHSC program. I was really lucky. I got to spend at least four years with the amazing Dr. Del Harnish, who I mean, it was one of the biggest innovators, creative disruptors at Mac. And um, I mean, this inquiry-based learning environment that I had there really opened my mind to questioning everything. Things don't fit into boxes. You can challenge stuff. And so I did. I had a wonderful time. And uh, I got really scared about what I should do next. And I didn't want to do medicine. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go into law. I dropped out after 10 days in law school. I was like, man, this is not for me. And what struck me was the way in which uh, legal education was being conducted more than anything. And I was like, you know what? I've, I've spent time doing inquiry. There's a different way. So I came back to Mac actually for a year. Dell, he gave me an office and said, make up a job for a year for yourself. No job description, nothing. And so I was just doing like weird, wacky stuff with complexity theory and education. I was uh, writing medical schools and asking them, would they accept applicants from an accredited program that uh, didn't have grades, but had a transcript and a learning, or sorry, had a learning portfolio. And they got back to me and said, no, but I mean, Dell really helped kind of push me to do this stuff. And so I ended up going to OISE, uh, U of T, Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. And I really was interested in complexity science, theories of uh, self-organization and living systems as it applied to facilitation of inquiry-based learning environments. There's something about emergence, right? talking about emergence of holistic properties in living systems. I'm like, you know what? This is happening in learning and education. I can, you can feel it in the room when people are really on to a topic, covering new ground, new territory. I wanted, that, I wanted to know what makes that buzz, right? What do you have to do as an educator and creating that environment? So while I was in Toronto, I joined an Afro-Brazilian Sama percussion orchestra. I got immersed in theater of the oppressed work, Mr. Bowal's work. And I also joined a um, Chinese martial arts and medicine school. 
And I also spent a lot of time with Buddhist mindfulness meditation. And so my immersion in kind of the, the full spectrum of, you know, being human really came alive while I was in Toronto. I mean, that spurred me to and then want to go do a doctorate in philosophy of education and arts education at Simon Fraser, looking at the, the sort of contemplative, psychological embodied dimensions of being an educator. I mean, this sort of, you know, put me in touch with sort of the sort of some of the, the deepest parts of myself creative aspects of myself. And I mean, I had a great time at West, couldn't find much work after I finished my degree, but I ended up finding my way back East. And I spent a bit of time at Mars Innovation Center in Toronto, running a leadership program there. And that's where I became really sort of excited by design, spent some time with some design educators, a real natural linkage with my stuff in the arts and creativity. And so design has now become a real amazing place for, for me to sort of talk about human experience is really the domain of what we're making and creating and solving for. I mean, so that's just sort of a, a little bit of a thread of how I got here. That is such an atypical route to academia, but at the same time, it's just, it speaks to why you have so many diverse approaches and come at it from such a philosophical bent. And it really is interesting to hear your journey, because I think for many people, they might have taken more of a straight path. And I think that goes a long way to show, like along the way, you can learn all sorts of different new skills that can just really spark interest in new areas. And that's, I think, where, to me, where creativity lies, is when you take something and you can see it from a different vantage point. And I think that your journey of meandering gives you that ability to see from a bunch of different backgrounds and disciplines. And maybe that's some of your secret sauce for being so creative, but uh, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I think that that's something that I ponder a lot is like, what makes us creative? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you kind of pulled on the metaphorical strings there that have animated the, the root for me. And that's, it's about wandering and being okay with, with being lost and messing around and, you know, I think of, uh, there's a, a writer, a fiction writer that uh, many people might know, Kurt Vonnegut, who uh, wrote some amazing work. And uh, his wife challenged him one day. He said he was, uh, he was going out to the store to buy one envelope. And she's like, well, why don't you just buy a whole bunch of envelopes? And then you don't have to get up and walk out into the street and go to the store and do all that stuff. And he said, you know what? When I go out and I get my envelope, I run into the neighbor and I run into the post office person and I see the kids playing in the street, et cetera. I mean, I'm paraphrasing it, but it was basically, I love it. He's like, you know, we're here on earth to fart around, like mess around. And so I love that sense of, you know what, like let's explore, let's play around, let's mess around for a while. And I mean, we can also be serious and get work done and great, but why can't we do both, right? Why do we have to sort of say what's one or the other? Because I, you know, I, I remember be struggling a lot with that feeling of like, I'm wandering around, am I just wasting my time? When am I going to get really serious with my life? And, but I just couldn't, I couldn't deny the curiosity to see something and say, hey, I'd like to try that. That looks really fun. Or yeah, what you mean, what if I just sort of tried it out and see what might happen? Um, so that's, that's sort of led me, led me well. Although many times I've sort of wondered, I mean, what am I doing? Where, where's my life going? What's happening? It wouldn't be the first time I've heard someone who is an exceptional person tell a meandering story, though. I think that in the end, most of us have these nonlinear paths. It just 
to the outset, you know, it's like that idea. I've seen a meme out there where it's like this big squiggly line and a straight shot. And some people, you know, like from the outside, it looks like it's a straight trajectory. But for the person that's living it, it's a meandering path that's not a straight vector, but rather it's like this back and forth and side to side thing and uh, curly cue that from the outside, you can't see it. So I agree with you. I think that that's a big part of like our journeys to become faculty members. That journey doesn't really stop with getting hired either, right? I think that as a faculty member, it's always interesting to see where our journeys take from the point that we're hired from that point all the way to our retirement. So Mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about this. You've been involved in this program with the HLA that's called the Pathfinders program that you're kind of piloting right now. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And it sounds like it's kind of in line with what we're talking about right now, which is the meandering path. And sometimes you get lost. And I think that's kind of what the Pathfinder program is about, right? The HLA, for those of you who haven't heard the, all the acronyms at McMaster, <laughs> is the Health Leaders Academy. And, and Sean teaches within some of that program as well, especially with his interest in you know, strategy and design and future facing kind of like um, forecasting and also his, uh, his work on leadership. So Sean, what's, what's, what is this Pathfinder program that you're piloting right now? So when COVID hit, our standard leadership program was canceled. I mean, it was a two-week boot camp. And we thought, okay, well, let's, let's see what we might want to do that's perhaps a different kind of offering. And so we spent the summer looking at what are people doing differently? What do we want to do differently as an opportunity to experiment? So we decided to, uh, I mean, our first run this fall with an eight-week virtual program that's got eight live sessions and, and some homework and some coaching in between. And then this idea, I mean, the, the word Pathfinder came to me as a metaphor for where people might sort of find themselves right now amidst the ambiguity of change. And I mean, it's, it's also, I think for many people, they, they do find a point in their career where they're maybe the wanting to sort of find a new direction. And particularly for those who are wanting to develop their leadership skills, they might not have had the training or the guidance around how to do that. And so finding or making that path is a need that we sort of wanted to just sort of explore how we might, might meet. There's also the fun other side, which is you think you've got the path and you think you really know what it is. And then let's get you lost a bit, right? Let's sort of, you know, let's, let's go into the woods without a map and see what might be there to, to, to discover. So the idea is we didn't want to make this very content heavy. And really, the only thing that we're kind of providing is a, essentially a, a process for understanding leadership, essentially as, as a creative learning process, where like uh, any good uh, navigator, you need to sharpen your senses, right? So you need to know how to observe your, your own inner and outer environment. I mean, human beings are sense makers. And so there's a part around, you know, how do we reflect and make sense of the world in different ways? We can get stuck in how we, you know, make cutouts, if you will, of the world. And how do we sort of understand our own position in different ways? And then I think most importantly is this thing around action, doing, making, experimenting, tinkering. Because I mean, in academia, we're just sort of used to like, you know, really being sort of great, some great theories out there, awesome models, love that stuff. But When we're looking at leadership, I mean, so much of it is about communication, your behavior, you know, trying new things out, right? Experimenting uh, and design, we call it prototyping, right? Where it's like, you don't know if it's going to work. Give me like 60%, 80%. That's good enough. Let's try it. So what we've done is we've essentially had folks do a lot of reflective work and brainstorming work around 
what do they want to work on for their leadership? And then uh, we help them sort of define what are the opportunities that they want to have. And so, you know, it's a bunch of stuff around handling difficult conversations and conflict, right? Or figuring out where do I want to go after being in this organization that I've been in for so many years and I don't know what else to do, right? What else is out there? And the fun part is then sort of having people sort of define what that is and then getting people to sort of imagine multiple futures. Where might they go, right? What, what, what might it look like to, to take a different kind of path, right? And so we, we get them to sort of come up with all kinds of experiments and things they might try out now to kind of learn very quickly what works, what doesn't, what do they like, what doesn't, and use whatever information they get, whatever feedback they get from that to inform their next step. So it's really about, I mean, we use cybernetics as a real um, sort of um, base to understand, I mean, this process of learning. So it's, it's a lot of fun. We sort of bring in a lot of creativity uh, in, into the work. And, and I mean, the other piece is also narrative, right? Story as a way of, uh, this, this, this really struck me today, um, narrative and story can be, it's, it's like a holistic container that integrates so many aspects of human experience, right? When we think about story, right, it's got all of it there. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to use, use that as well as part of our work. Okay, so that's a really fascinating course that you've built. So hopefully uh, those of us who are maybe wandering in the woods right now who want a roadmap or at least a guide to think through how you can appreciate the woods, that might be a program that uh, people could look up for. And so uh, for those of you who are interested, you can check out the HLA program. We'll often cross-list a lot of the programs from the HLA onto the McMaster Program for Faculty Development website. We like to help our friends and neighbors out, promote their stuff, and especially if it's interesting to our faculty. So definitely check that out. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the other thing that I was going to say is that now we're in this like new world of a digital future. And with the pandemic, there was a big shift to kind of like pivot online. And I thought I'd pick your brain a little bit about what you think the future is going to hold for a lot of what we do as educators, as uh, people who work in the health professions? And what do you see as some trends that uh, we're going to need to pay attention to? And then on top of all that, how, how do we stay human when we've got all this technology in our faces? I've been thrust into this like the rest of us. And I feel like I'm sort of at the front line of learning with, stu- with students and my colleagues about what works. And we're, we're working very quickly at this. And I think it, a couple of lessons are starting to, to kind of emerge. I mean, one is I've known right away when it's been too much content. And so the, the thumbnail guide that I've had is cut your content in half and double your engagement. And by engagement, it's dialogue, it's conversation, it's reflection, it's interaction. And I've never been a super content heavy guy, but even then in, in my teaching, I find that if we're going to be online with each other, if we're going to be face-to-face online, there needs to be a good, really good reason to be here and meet, right? Because it, it is, it's difficult enough as it is to have a, a great conversation. And so it's really made me think about what can I do with students or with my colleagues to create a container that allows us to have a really engaging conversation, a deep conversation, a conversation that allows us to listen deeply to one another, to perhaps even be changed or moved even by what we hear. And we have to fight against a number of things here. One is not having the body of another in front of us. I mean, our bodies are wired to respond to body language. And so cameras on, 
keep your attention, visual attention on what you're seeing in front of you, right? Move, move your body more than you might normally do to assist others in, in reading you, right? So there's an almost like a need to amplify the signal a bit to compensate, right, for the lack of what's going on. So now we have to sort of move the body more. Ground rules for, I mean, things like distractions. Can we be responsible to stay single-tasked in this? Can we commit to that? What's that like? And we can even talk, I even talk with my students about the struggle of doing that, right? What do we need to support ourselves in doing that? Because I have 8 million things that are, I try to shut down my notifications, but geez, they're still popping up at me. There goes one right now in my earbud, right? I just heard that. So that's also now bringing in awareness of our nervous system and what happens when we hear all of this stuff, right? We're looking for satisfaction, right? Hey, what's that message? Is that for me? Is there something bad that's been said about me? Is there something good that I want there? So, so that comes into the conversation. So we have to attend to that. So how do we create the environment? And then I think it's, it's also about the kinds of questions that we're exploring and how, and how we go about exploring. So I'll give you an example. Some of what I ask my students to do are, are things like developing empathy, developing skills in listening, and identifying underlying needs and emotions that others might be feeling. Sure, I could make this an academic conversation and there's parts of that are important, but for these students in, in the work that we're doing with each other, it becomes about practice, modeling, trying things out. So the experiment has been show them some stuff, right? Some videos. But very quickly, it's about getting to use their senses. What do you notice, right? What's happening? Making use of the tools that we have with, you know, chat and interactive visual collaboration tools like Mural right, or Google Jamboards to get them to, to do something with their ideas, like to put them into words, right? We know that, that that really helps a lot in learning. And then, I mean, when the environment has a lot of people in it, you got to break it up. And so having people go out with a clear understanding of a simple task into those breakouts you know, it's, it's a bit of a struggle getting them there, but we're figuring it out. But once they're there, then it's about reorienting because it is a bit of like the bends. I feel like when I get shifted from room to room, you've kind of like, where am I going now? Who are these people? And re- recognizing that it, it needs time to get established and then they can attend to the question. So it's different than in person where you can kind of give them time to move into their groups and settle in. And trusting, I mean, part of it is all, I don't, I can't go into every room because if I have a lot of students, it's also trusting even more so now that they're guiding themselves and that if they get stuck, that they're going to ask for help. So there's the leap of faith. This, this Teresa is my, my, one of my big insights is even here right now, I'm in my office, I'm looking at my computer. I have a little camera and I see you and I have to almost like every moment have faith that you're on the other end and you care and you listen and you're here. And so it it feels like that even more so with, with, with my students who I just might not even see their, their faces on the screen. Exactly. I mean, a big part of uh, being an online teacher right now, it's, I mean, you see it actually with other modes of media. So like I, I, you know, Stephen Colbert and Jerry Seinfeld actually recently reflected on how awkward it is to be doing comedy to no one basically, right? And I feel that way about my online teaching. And so for any learners that are out there, 
it's great if you can interact with us back because it's lonely on our end, right? We have to have faith that you're absorbing it, that you're interacting, that you're even there sometimes because if you turn off your camera and mute yourself, I really can't tell. And on the flip side of that, like we're human too. And so being able to explain and maybe be vulnerable with your students around some of that as well, I think is really important. And obviously, like for equity reasons and accessibility reasons and crappy Wi-Fi reasons, there's lots of reasons why people might want to have their video off. But I think that engaging in chat, you know, like and and showing signs of life there, having there's the reactions on Zoom that I like, you know, or uh, if you're Microsoft Teams, then you can use go ahead and use the emojis. They have a wide range of emojis and those are obviously not quite the same. And I'll be honest, uh, those students and uh, faculty, because since I do a lot of faculty development, who are nodders in the world are the heroes of the modern day. I saw that as a tweet, but I, I do believe that that, that nonverbal assent that you give when you kind of like, you know, give a thumbs up or, you know, do some nodding, that can be really encouraging for someone on the other end. So if you haven't yet presented in front of the crew to know how awkward it is and how hard it is, then I would definitely encourage you to just flip the switch a little bit on the students and have them understand how hard that can be. And I think they'll understand better, you know? Totally. And to your point, I mean, I like the use of putting things in the chat and on teams, they can give a thumbs up if they like the idea or not, right? You can sort of see, Hey, quick, quick check-in. How are folks doing on this? Right. And people kind of give a thumbs up. The other thing that I started to use uh, more of is uh, bringing in music, right? So, um, you know, I'll have with me my phone and, um, you know, I'll just be ready to play some music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My partner, he teaches at George Brown and he picks a song every time to have walk-in music, just like the athletes do on, <laughs> you know, yeah. The, yeah. the stage. I think it's important to bring some of that humor in and, and it's it's been great to see how people's reactions to that because I think that's really great and, and having that time to share, building in that social time. Because I think it's important to have that, right? The, the times that you would have, you know, maybe hang around after class with some of the students to like just chat a little bit and do some of that informal mentorship, creating that space so that you're not running from one Zoom to another, that you're not just like closing the Microsoft Teams page and then moving on to another class or having runoff. If you can create that space or just program it into your, you know, you have a three-hour lecture, well, you can have some time to just like pal around and and have a chat and things like that program some breaks where people can bring their beverage and just you know turn on their video and just sip coffee together these are rituals that we need right as humans to stay connected and i think you can humanize a lot of our online teaching that way rituals are totally totally where it's at right that it just makes it uh makes it normal and routine that there are some activities that are that have deep meaning and can be quite simple sharing breaking bread having a check-in about where, how folks are doing makes a huge difference. And, and so your question, Teresa, a bit earlier is, is sort of future facing. I've now begun to think about, well, what are sort of some of the, you know, what might be some of the emerging jobs or, or trainings for educators doing this work? And one is, I feel like there's now a big, because this is a big production, there's a lot of tech and music, slide decks, breakout rooms is a lot of work. And so I think we're going to see rules and jobs for kind of like learning tech and AV, right? That uh, uh, enable instructors to sort of do their work well, but also, I mean, instructors, that's what I've become. I mean, I look at my office right now with the lights and the mic. And so, so that's the tech end. But I think the, the other piece is almost like I can imagine 
uh, performance training, right? That here you are, teaching is a performance, that there is guidance, there's creating a with, you, with the audience a together kind of experience. A good performer will create a very deep sense of connection with the audience and go together along some kind of journey. And I mean, for me, it's felt often like I need to pay more attention to how I'm speaking because I know when I'm not rushing and I'm, there's those pauses in how I speak that that silence creates an opportunity to connect. And then I've got, I've got right here immediately with me is my son, right? My son just kind of walks in. You want to say hi there, Theo? Hi. That's my, that's my friend, Teresa. Hi. <laughs> and a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, yeah. Say, say hello to all the faculty members that are listening as well. Hi. 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 I'll be just a minute, buddy. <laughs> yeah, guest stars from our children and our, our pets. That definitely is a humanizing factor as well, for sure. You know what, like it's, it's, it's such an important factor is that, you know, with the work that you do at home, right? Like to welcome, surprise uh, guest stars like your son and pets yeah. and other things and to, you know, like uh, be able to connect with those things and normalizing it because we're all going to get, you know, Zoom bombed or Microsoft team <laughs> invaded by people in our lives. And I think that's, that's an okay thing if you're okay with sharing that part of your life, right? So Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's kind of fun to um, have folks, I mean, to build, again, empathy for one another. What's your sort of immediate surroundings like? And sometimes I show sort of a, an image of like my, my workspace and my view. You know, I'll turn my camera. Hey, that's my view. I, there's some sun coming in right now. And hey, everybody, don't you love that sunshine? Gives for them sure. a sense of that. I mean, I'm not just this little square here. Mm-hmm. But I do exist somewhere in the world. Right? Yeah. I, I do yeah. take up some space somewhere. Well, those are amazing tips. Thank you so much for a great conversation about this. I always find myself energized after I speak to you. So there could also be all the coffee I drank earlier, but I'm going to attribute it to you today. Yes. So. Great. <laughs> all right. It. Well, we'll have you back again another time to chat about other things, but thanks so much, Sean, for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.